Mazdar City is an unfinished dream city on the outskirts of Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. As of today, we have built up around 600,000 square meters and around another 300,000 square meters under construction. It's a place with big, lofty goals to be the world's first city with no waste and no carbon emissions. On the right-hand side, next to the 10-megawatt solar field, you can see is an, an R&D area, and we have built some. Uh, there's one test villa in there, which is our first foray into net-zero energy home living. It's this place where it's not immediately clear how much of it is for show, how much of it is messaging towards the world, and how much of it is real. You know, it's hard to separate reality from hype when you see a lot of these on-paper claims. That's Chico Harlan, a global climate correspondent for The Post. Chico got a tour of Mazdar City earlier this month to see how this oil-rich kingdom on the Persian Gulf is trying to be a pioneer in renewable energy and climate solutions. It was just, let's show, let's show the world how the UAE can transition away from oil, away from fossil fuels. Chico saw cleverly designed buildings that generate their own shade and wind. But so far, the city has not lived up to its goals. They wanted a place for 90,000 people. It has 15,000. And even, I should mention, that even the people that, that do work at this place, most of them come in gas-guzzling cars. So there's a quote-unquote eco-parking lot, but it's blanketed by vehicles that have just driven 30 minutes from central Abu Dhabi. So it's not the paradise that they said it would be. And there's only three buildings out of dozens that are totally carbon neutral. And then you think, is the world going to be carbon neutral in 2050? That's one of the things that was going through my mind while I was there. The UAE is set to host a landmark annual climate summit that starts tomorrow. It's called the Conference of the Parties, or COP for short. This is the 28th time this conference has been held. Yes, COP28. This is the annual gathering of nations, almost 200 of them, that are all part of the UN Convention on Climate Change. They meet to discuss the pathway of how to set the world on a trajectory to avoid disaster. Like the question is essentially how to reduce emissions. This brings together obviously a ton of different points of view. You have the greenest wind-powered nations and uh, and the fossil fuel emitting petrostates all together, all in the same room. They tend to be very contentious. And the discussions may be particularly contentious this year, given just how much its host nation profits from fossil fuels, despite some of its efforts in Mazdar City and elsewhere. The UAE has a lot of different interests at stake, and they do conflict. The UAE wants to be seen as a truly green player. But the question is, how much of this is about image maintenance, which of course is also profitable, and how much of this is about actually keeping the planet from catastrophe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. It's Wednesday, November 29th. Today, 
what to watch for as this oil-rich country prepares to host the world's biggest summit on climate change. Chico, to start with, could you just summarize what's at stake at this year's COP? If you look at the science, emissions have to go down really fast, 43% by 2030. One of the ways to do that is to reduce fossil fuels. But the problem is, every single year that you continue to emit, you have a less and less and less chance of avoiding this 1.5 Celsius threshold for temperature rise that is generally equated as the level where the damages of climate change become unacceptable. And so with every passing year, the window narrows. With every passing year, the action that would be necessary to to avert that, that scenario gets even more dramatic. And so either the action gets more dramatic or you start to reach the inevitable recognition, still which you don't see in the rhetoric of people attending COP, that 1.5 is is already out the window. And I think we're with each cop that f- falls short of expectations, you can more credibly say that the world is going to blow right past that figure. So it, it seems like that's the main goal of this climate conference is to figure out, you know, whether the world can get itself on track to meet these goals um, of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um what are some of the other items on the agenda that are, you know, of note to you? Well, one of the things that's happening is the conclusion of this multi-year process called a global stock take. This is one of these efforts that sounds extremely bureaucratic in which you basically take stock of, of progress. And it, it also ultimately is assessed on a global level. We already know the results of, of that stock tick. We know that the world is not doing anywhere near enough in basically any category. So the question for COP is, how, to what extent does that conclusion spur political action? That's one of the questions that pertains to this global stock take. Then you have loss and damage. That's something that is kind of one of the top buzzwords for, for this COP. Yeah, what's loss and damage? Yes, loss and damage refers to a fund that has been talked about for years and has always been controversial that would essentially help to pay for damages in vulnerable countries that tend to be low emitters and also tend to have the greatest vulnerability to the ravages of climate change. When these events happen in, say, Mali or Mozambique or low-lying island countries of, of the Pacific, They often don't have the money to come back, so they just fall a little farther behind every year. What they want is money from the big emitters, and that's not money for building walls or for cutting their own emissions. It's money for emergencies and climbing out of them. This fund was actually agreed upon last year in uh, COP27 in Egypt, but the details were left undetermined and were in fact put into the hands of of a committee that met many times this year and very contentious rounds of talks that did finish recently with an agreement on paper, but that agreement studiously avoided some of the most pertinent questions and issues. Like it didn't mention scale, didn't mention how big this fund would be, and it did urge wealthy countries to pay into it, but that's a long way away from sort of one of the original, and for the United States, unpalatable ideas, which is that there should be a duty for the high-emitting countries to pay into it. So then it becomes a question of how much money gets pledged. That's something we'll start to see at this COP. 
And what about the question of phasing out fossil fuels? I mean, that's the, that's the other big one. The other big question is about what you say about fossil fuels. This was an issue that last year came to the table. Saudi Arabia was one of the main objectors to any language about a phase-down or phase-out. There are basically two things to look for in this space. One, whether they mention anything, phase-down, phase-out of fossil fuels. And then secondly, if they do, whether the word abated is used as the qualifier. And sorry, can you just explain a little more why it matters whether the word abated is in there or not? Well, it might just sound like one single tiny qualifying word, but it speaks to two very different worlds. One world where you're calling for a phase-out of fossil fuels is a world where you're actually stopping the use of oil, of gas, and certainly of coal. The, The pledge to phase down unabated fossil fuels is a world where you can still use these fossil fuels into the future, maybe for decades to come, but on the condition that you find a way to capture from the air directly the emissions that are produced from the process. Mm, so okay. that that is a huge fork in the road. And though it just seems like a battle over rhetoric, it basically is a battle over fossil fuels in the future. Wow. Okay, got it. So who is going to be there? Like, who is actually in the room negotiating all of these thorny questions? Well, you know, for the first couple of days, you have the leaders who come, not all of them. Uh, Joe Biden is not expected to be there, neither is Xi Jinping. The president of China. And yet they, they basically go home before the real sausage making happens. And then you have the negotiators, the envoys, the climate envoys, the diplomats, staying it out, getting bleary-eyed, even as like the trade show part of the COP is disassembled. And at the end, basically like one last light is on, mm-hmm. nobody has slept and then there's some agreement reached. And by then, everybody's forgotten whether the leaders came or not because that is that really comes at the beginning of the COP and then you still have eight, nine, ten days to go while the, the details are hashed out. And so, I mean, the fact that, you know, you mentioned that President Biden isn't expected to be there and that also the Chinese President Xi Jinping is not expected to be there. Do those feel like meaningful absences to you? Or are you saying that it's kind of a symbolic thing anyway, and they're not really the ones who are, you know, hashing out the details? I wouldn't dismiss it. I mean, there is always messaging that happens by a leader stepping foot at a cop. It shows, I care about this issue and I'm putting my attention to it. But a lot of the success of COP is comprised of these negotiations that happen year-round with getting no attention. Mm. And it is a, an event standing on the foundation of processes and microprocesses and side negotiations and technicalities. What the world leaders can do that can help the outcome of a COP is less in the final agreement, but in individual pledges, in working outside deals, some of the aspects that have been most helpful over the last couple of years when it comes to climate change policy have not been things that are contained in final agreements of COP, but things that are along the sidelines, pledges among a group of willing countries on methane, things like that, that, that basically are a workaround from the official system, but that a world leader would have the capacity to do with a group of others in the room that feel the same way as he or she does. Okay, so 
How is it that the UAE came to be the host this year? And, like, does being the host country actually sort of make a big difference? Like, will that affect the way that the actual conference goes? It it could. Well, the UAE is the host because they made an unopposed bid. COP is supposed to rotate based on the region. They do have kind of a calendar of which region gets the job of hosting it. And it is it is a complicated job because the host nation has the task of kind of being the the marshal for all the meetings that are leading up to it, and they have the ability to basically work the room and to build consensus. So that gives them a certain power. And yet, the people who argue that the host country doesn't have that much power would say that historically there hasn't been much of a correlation between which country hosts and the outcome. Mm. I mean, one of the biggest train wrecks of a COP was the one hosted in Denmark, which is generally seen as a clean country. Oh, interesting. There are a lot of reasons to think that, you know, who hosts the COP is is not so consequential. But what has added to the scrutiny on the UAE has been the decision that the country made for itself to appoint as president of the COP the CEO of their oil company. It's not unprecedented to have a cop in a country that's dependent on fossil fuels, but to have the person who is the face of the cop be a fossil fuel executive is really a step into a new territory for this cop. And that has made the choice of the UAE as host more controversial than it otherwise would have been. After the break, we dive into those controversies including some new allegations that this executive is using his role as conference president to broker oil deals. We'll be right back. So Chico, before the break, you walked us through how the UAE was chosen to host this year's Global Climate Conference, COP28, and also how an oil kingdom is something of an odd fit to host this summit. And then you started to mention that what makes this particularly kind of complicated is the person who is in charge of of sort of leading and presiding over this conference. Tell me about him. Yes, his name is Dr. Sultan Al-Jabbar. He is a man who wears many different hats. He is the chairman of Mazdar, which is the renewables arm of the UAE, and he's also the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which is commonly known as Adnoc. And Adnoc is one of the biggest oil players in the world. So he has his hands on on both of those. So both the oil in the UAE and also all of these efforts in renewable energy for the country. Yes. I mean, it's almost uncanny how much he embodies the contradictions and contrasts and and conflict of interest that are playing out in his small country. He has been a very, very public and present figure this year, speaking at conferences, sometimes oil and energy conferences, but making the rounds. And he definitely talks in a way that always portrays the UAE as an unquestioned transformer with plans for solar expansion and green hydrogen 
production, and he has called the hope of limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius as a quote-unquote North Star. Maximum ambitions, zero emissions. Let's show the world that this region is a true climate leader. Now, what he doesn't mention is that his own company is uh, is expanding its drilling and essentially on a trajectory that would flout all of the best scientific guidelines for keeping warming below 1.5. Wow. One thing that advocacy groups have, have expressed concern about is that by keeping his position as CEO of Adnoc during this period, he is invariably coming into contact with people, getting meetings with people under the auspices of his job as COP president, people who also have some interest in his oil investments or who might be able to help him. And people have been very concerned that the various hats that he wears could collide or that you know he would have a hard time differentiating his varying roles. And so there's been some reporting recently that's come out from places like the BBC suggesting that Al-Jabbar may have been planning to use this climate conference as an opportunity to discuss fossil fuel deals with countries that will be there. What do you know about the truth of that? Yes, there was a story that made some waves in the run-up to COP that was reported by both the BBC and the Center for Climate Reporting, which is a non-profit investigative journalism outfit. They obtained some documents that were essentially talking points that Al-Jabbar had been given in the run-up to meetings with different leaders. What you can see, based on their reporting, is that on the listed talking points that were obtained, he was going into these meetings with, with other leaders, with climate envoys, not just prepped on what to push for in his role as COP president, oh, we want you to do this and that and pledge this and that at COP, but he was also given bullet points about the interests of Mazdar and Adnoc in each of these meetings. So what, what actually came out of his mouth, we don't know. But what we can say, based on this, this reporting, is that he was mindful of his other roles. And that, that alone shows the complicated aspects of, um, of what he's trying to do in retaining his other positions while also serving as COP president. Wow. We have not been able to corroborate that. We've tried. We've reached out to many countries, several of which got back to us and said uh, on background that Jabbar did not use these meetings for talking points for for oil or for renewables deals for that matter. And then the COP presidency spokesperson said that the reports were inaccurate uh, and and, uh, that the reporting is unverified. And yet what these documents that the BBC determined were authentic would suggest are that at minimum in his preparation for these meetings, he did have in his mind the varied interests at play. If he was indeed seeing these documents ahead of time, the documents do show that he was preparing in the, you know, to put ideas uh, in the back of his mind, not just about what was at stake for COP, what was at stake for Mazdar, and what was at stake for, for Adnoc. That's, that's the, at the heart of this report that we saw from the BBC. So it seems like, I mean, there's some concern about him, of course, holding these sort of dual positions where, you know, he's both the one kind of officially presiding over, you know, this push for climate solutions, but also, you know, someone who has other interests as well and could potentially 
be using the position to further some of those other interests. It speaks also to just the general trend of fossil fuel interests taking on a bigger and bigger role at these talks, just in terms of the number of lobbyists that have been coming. It's been increasing for the last number of years. There's no reason to think that this year the record won't break anew. So I, I think that Al-Jabbar's appointment as president of the COP echoes other pre-existing concerns that the fossil fuel industry has reached its tentacles too deeply into the process. And so, you know, whether or not some of this is happening, like, behind closed doors, what publicly has Al-Jabbar and have other leaders in the UAE been saying about the country's climate goals more broadly? I mean, I've listened to so many uh, hours of Al-Jabbar talking at this point. We must raise the maximum ambition possible. I can basically hear his voice in the back of my head. He has a a very McKinsey kind of way of talking. Consulting firm sort of way of talking. Yes, yes, indeed. Let's be practical, let's be action-oriented, and let's be honest about what it will really take to get the job done. And the, the future that he touts invariably emphasizes cleaner technology, a green energy transition, but with fossil fuels playing a a stabilizing role and helping the world retain security during this transition. When it comes to talking about their own country, officials in the UAE emphasize that the UAE's oil is relatively clean, cleaner than their competitors, let's say. It emits on a per-barrel basis less CO2 than most other companies. And so they say that for so long as the world needs oil, it should come from the cleanest sources. And that implies that they want to be in the race to see which producer can stay in the game the longest, to see which producer can basically be there to serve the world its last hypothetical barrel of oil. They already have relatively clean oil. That is true. They also are investing a lot of money in making it cleaner. But those investments, it should be mentioned, pertain to their in-house operation, the work of extracting the oil, of, of surveying, of shipping domestically. And then what happens when the oil is sent abroad, exported? In the UAE's case, it almost always is exported. Then they have no purview over how it's used and the emissions that are caused. When they say that they're going to be net zero as a country, or when Adnoc, the oil company, says it will be net zero as a company by 2045, they're not talking about the emissions that come from the burning of the oil, the end use of the oil, which is the vast majority of emissions that come from any barrel. They're talking about their own internal operations. So there are some huge caveats here. But I mean, to look outside of just the UAE, I mean, there are a lot of countries with ambitious climate goals that, you know, don't seem on track to reaching them, right? The majority. I mean, it's the gap between stated policies and what's actually playing out is vast uh, in most of the world's major economies. In some countries, it's a little bit better than others, but there is a huge gap, and globally, there's an extraordinary gap. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to to turn on paper pledges into action, and the money that's involved in decarbonizing the planet is enormous. The transfer of money that needs to go to the global south is enormous. The changes could potentially be profitable, but they're entrenched interests 
that are also enormous. So the the number of obstacles that are profound are seem absolutely <laughs> uh, mm. astonishing, and that's something that this conference has not been well equipped to wrestle with. So um, this conference takes place every year. Do we know where it's going to be next year? No, not yet. It's Eastern Europe's turn to host, and and it's kind of been a, a comical uh, showdown so far because Russia doesn't want it in the EU. Poland has, has typically been the country that uh, gets the turn when when Eastern Europe is up for its chance, but this time Russia does not want the EU to host. Azerbaijan and Armenia have essentially been staring down each other and blocking one another's bids. And so right now, there is no clarity about who will host the next global summit, even though there is clarity about who would host the one after that, which it will be in Brazil. Okay. Uh, and that is not much time because these events have become so big and require so much planning. It is a rather bizarre and worrying that they don't yet know who will take the baton next. Well, I know that you are headed to the UAE um, to catch some of this summit. So we will obviously be eagerly awaiting your stories and reporting that come out of it. And thank you so much, Chico, for taking the time to walk through all of this with us. My pleasure, Lily. It's been nice talking to you. Chico Harlan is the global climate correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff and edited by Robin Amer. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Special thanks to Stuart Leavenworth. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.